What kind of person do you think of when you hear the word visionary? Until recently, I thought about, well, this. Huge personalities so surrounded by hype machines of their own making that any actual substance or truth about who they are or what they really do for others is lost. Massive audiences and tons of media attention and lavish lifestyles and, apparently, possession of a certain blend of charm and foresight. And sure, when my skepticism isn't at the wheel, I see some merit to some of what these people do. And I recognize that floating in the froth, you'll find your gems, your more humble, more servant-minded visionaries, your Dalai Lamas or Yo-Yo Ma's or Malala's. But, I mean, they're once-in-a-generation voices. Mostly when I hear the word visionary, I think about the business world version of the Kardashians. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. They're famous because they're famous. Unstoppable PR forces and, for some reason, revered despite their vapid, self-aggrandizing ways. That's what I think of when I hear the word visionary. But this is not a story about that kind of visionary. Refreshing, empowering, and doable. Keep, 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 keep it going. It's unthinkable. Questioning best practices to create work that resonates. I'm Jay Kunzo. This is not a story about bogus visionaries, about self-proclaimed gurus, or even genuinely talented entrepreneurs and thinkers and artists whose media machines are just running overtime. This is not a story about people with the gift. The rare voices that we revere who become the thing of legend and lore. This isn't a story about any of that. This is a story about our day-to-day work and a different kind of visionary that emerges there, in the mud, in the unglamorous daily grind of tinkering and shipping and slogging it out inside the gap between the work we can create and the work we imagine creating. No, this is not a story about the stereotypical visionary. This is a story about a guy named John, facing a very common problem that I'm guessing you might face too. My name is John Benini. I'm a writer before anything else, and I run a community called Some Good Content. I want to go back to the early days of our careers. And I remember looking at some folks with following in the business world or marketing more specifically. And I was like, wow, they're they're doing all these projects. It's to their name or on their website. It's not a part of their company, but they kind of conflated the two, right? It's like the early movers in this personal brand or influencer concept. And uh, I remember seeing them and being like, they have audience and they create stuff. I want that. How do I get that? When you first broke into marketing and you saw people who were building personal projects to teach, to inspire, to build a following and an audience, what did you think about all that stuff? It was similar. It was it was inspiring. I was drawn to specifically people that you could tell were doing it because they thoroughly enjoyed the work. And I think early on for me, it was about that. It was about finding people who kind of shared that same passion that I had. I felt a need to kind of create outside of working hours. I don't know why. It wasn't for financial reasons at the time. I was just doing it because I needed to for some reason. I wanted that too. And I felt like I I could do that 
specifically as it relates to writing. If I've ever been good at anything my whole life, it's been writing that just somehow translated into content marketing and blogging and all this stuff that we do now, right? And John began creating, including his podcast, which he called Louder Than Words and is now defunct. But it still has a ripple effect that extends to today. In fact, he still gets messages about the podcast on social media. Like the other day, somebody DM'd him to say, hey. Wanted to say hi, I've been following you since Louder Than Words. I'm like, I haven't recorded a Louder Than Words podcast in four years. But it seemed like at the time it was only big brands. Um, and then people like Tim Ferriss and, you know, who I would consider a, a big brand. Um, but it seemed like only big people like that were doing podcasting. So I launched yeah. the Louder Than Words podcast just to kind of to interview other marketers that I was inspired by and kind of talk to them about their processes and and what they were inspired by. What did they read? Like, what did their day to day look like? And somehow I was able to score interviews with people like Seth Godin and Ryan Holiday and all these people that I could probably never get on a call now. You know, they have requests coming from everywhere. But that podcast really served as a creative outlet for me. And that really started everything. I think it went to number nine on like the iTunes business charts. Again, that would never happen today just because of the sheer volume that's out there. But that was really the first thing where I started creating something on the side for myself. And it actually did something, right? Like a lot of people were listening to it. Was there a moment where you switched from feeling like on the outside of the club, you know, the group of names that people know about and, and look to for inspiration? Did you switch from being on the outside of that to then feeling like a part of that group? I think it was when Inc wrote a blog post about like the top 10 marketing or business podcast you should subscribe to or something like that. And somebody forwarded it to me. and was like, oh, Louder Than Words is listed in here. I was like, what? And I sure enough, opened the article up. And then sure enough, like towards the bottom of the list, which I didn't give, give shit about where it was on the list, just that it was on there was Louder Than Words. I had tried for so long for the agency I worked for and then later for you know the software company I had worked for to get links, bylines, whatever, in like Inc. and all these places. Can never do it. And somehow I was creating this thing. I wasn't trying to get links. I wasn't pitching anybody at Inc. or anywhere else. And somehow that was the first time I had ever gotten mentioned anywhere like that. And so I guess if I did have a moment where I felt like, not that I felt like I, was, I, was, I had now become those people that I had aspired to be, but it felt big. That was the first time that I was like, holy crap, like people are listening to this. It's not just like my, my friends and my family. When that becomes the, something you experience, does it change the work at all? It's like, oh, wow, people are actually paying attention and taking me seriously and expecting something of me. At the time, I, I don't think it did. I think maybe it probably put more pressure on to continuing to have big guests because at the time I felt like that's what was driving listens. That's what was driving the word of mouth. That's what resulted in people talking about it on Inc. was because I had Seth Godin and, and these kind of people on. And that's probably impacted the work. And I would probably say negatively, just because I think over time, the reason I, I maybe had gotten burnt out on that podcast was it gets hard to maintain that level of guest, especially when you were a, you know, quote unquote, nobody like me. And then eventually you kind of hit a wall where you're like, okay, uh, where do I go now? Kind of exhausted my network a little bit. Where do I go next? So I think it probably just maybe added pressure to keep the guest profile really, really high. And I don't think that was necessarily a, a good thing. I think the focus becomes more on trying to find the big, massive guests and less on the, the angle. And I think if you have the right angle, and this is something I didn't learn until later, if you have the right angle, you can slot in anyone 
right? That that has relevant experience to speak of and the right story that you're investigating, right? From a like from a reporter standpoint, I don't think the guest matters as much. And I didn't know that then. And I feel like by going all in on the guest, missed out on well, let me build up like what does louder than words mean? Like I never had a meaning for what that meant. And that's how it so often goes for so many of us, right? We try a thing, whether it's public or private, and after a while, the desire to try it gives way to the desire for it to work, which then gives way for the desire for it to grow. Often, at least if you're in a publicly facing or some kind of results-driven job or project, that turns into the endless chase for more. With John, that meant more listeners, bigger guests, faster show growth. It can burn you out. Because you got to ask, to what end? To what end do I want more? Do I want bigger or faster? What's the point of any of this? Well, if, if you listen to me on this show or literally anywhere across the internet, you'll know that I think the point is to make a difference, to make things that help people. And it seems, at least at first glance, that those stereotypical visionaries, they matter. They help people. Maybe some of them are overly selfish about it or I don't get it, but they seem to have the reach and the resources to make a difference to a lot of people. But that kind of giant platform seems impossibly out of reach for the rest of us, or maybe it's not even desirable to achieve. John's platform and his core desire professionally is simple but refreshing. Make good content. Now do you understand why we get along? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you get it. So after he ended his podcast and spent some time reflecting, John decided to launch his next side project. At the very same time, this project would become a source of freedom for John and a very specific type of frustration I'm betting you also share with him as he moved from wanting to try something to wanting it to work to wanting it to grow. The project, which he still runs as of this recording, is a community group for marketers called Some Good Content. Uh, it started off as just a, a Patreon group, a forum for me to share frameworks, processes, tactics that I've used in, over the years when it comes to building content marketing programs, hiring writers, creating assignment briefs, working with writers. John's group started as a bunch of close contacts and existing John Bonini fans, but the group has grown to more than 500 members, marketers who arrived to learn from John's experience. Yeah, we actually just launched a, an actual free website portion of it too, so it's not just a Patreon anymore. Inside Some Good Content, members find a whole bunch of useful content, some from John and some from fellow members. The most common posts are tactics that John has actually used in his career to create some good content, plus examples of great marketing deconstructed and frameworks for doing different tasks related to the job of a content marketer. For instance. So I kind of developed what I call the search motivation framework, which helps me think about the different types of content I should or can create, whether it's for myself or, or brands. And I kind of shared that framework with everybody. And so like, this is how I come up with different topics. Didn't think much of it and kind of put it into a post. And that, that's that been huge. And so I continue to kind of dive into that and get more specific on different parts of it and different aspects of it. That's something recently that's that's been really, uh, that I think resonated really well. It's about the practical how-tos, not the fluff. And it's all led by John, all to help marketing practitioners keep up in an ever-changing profession. Content itself, I think, has gotten 
like and like anything else it's just gotten more co- complicated like when i first got into this space blogging was basically the biggest medium now there's audio there's also video and there's all these things and so people are pulled in all these directions and i just feel like the stuff i see on twitter the stuff i see shared even from the bigger folks influencers quote unquote is so regurgitated homogenized oversimplified people don't want to hear that yeah you should tell better stories or create fomo in your content oh really that would work um and i just wanted as like why does nobody talk about the practical things? And maybe it's unsexy, but why doesn't people talk about the practical things of like coming up with the right angles and the right topics and how to do all these things that people continue to espouse that uh, as like obvious, you know, things that we should all focus on as as creators and content marketers or writers or whoever. And so I was like, you know, I'm just going to create a group and it's going to be for content geeks and people that really want to learn how to like the specifics, like you know, managing a writer, like what should a brief look like? Uh, let's share some examples, you know, I'll create mine, you share yours, we'll, we'll go real deep on these things. And that was really the whole, the message I sent to everybody new that joins and joins the community is like, when people ask questions in the group, go deep on your answers. Like this isn't the place for fluff or oversimplifications. The whole purpose of this is to really go deep on the things that we're all working on. And I just don't see that a lot, especially with content, just because it's all about SEO and links and it bores the hell out of me. But what about like making it good? Like we're, <laughs> we're talking about all these things like, oh, how to get links, how to optimize the page, how to get on page one, how to like, cool, cool. That's awesome. But like, how do we like make it good first? <laughs> when I first put out a LinkedIn post several weeks before I launched a group, I put a thing out and I just said, good content gets found. But 50% of the people that read that post were like, yeah, hell yeah. And then the other 50% were like, screw you. You don't know what you're talking about. Right then I was like, I got it. In that moment, I think John did something powerful. He sensed what frustrated him and he turned that into curiosity. Well, why aren't we talking more about that stuff? How do you create good content really? What does good even mean? John had spent years working as a marketer for several fast-growing tech companies, and he spent a lot of time on his original podcast interviewing visionaries in the space. As a result, John believed he could answer those questions for his members. They had questions. John had answers because John had done the work. Now, sometimes those answers would simply be packaged pieces of John's existing process, like how he brainstorms better ideas for blog posts. Other times, they'd feel more like a challenge to the status quo from John to his members. For example, there was a recent post in the group called, You Need More Reporters, Not Columnists. And this was inspired by something else I saw on social, which is one of the inputs for how I come up with ideas. This was inspired by one of those general platitudes that John can't stand, the things you see spinning across an industry. And if you're not in marketing, trust me, these things spin across marketing. It's fluffy stuff, not practical stuff, that people can actually use in their work. This specific platitude that had John fired up was somebody who tweeted that brands need to act more like media companies. One of those generalizations I'm talking about that inspired me to start the group in the first place, which is like a media company. Here we go again. Like everybody wants to be a media company, but nobody wants to be a journalist. And like that was this line that immediately came to my head when I saw that post. And I ended up using that as like 
the anchor when I promoted it on LinkedIn and Twitter later on was everybody wants to be a media company. Nobody wants to be a journalist. So what's the hardest part of running some good content? Coming up with new things to share that you think are worthy of people paying you. Is what I'm sharing worth paying for? In today's world, where you can access ideas and advice instantly and everywhere and for free, what do people pay for? What kinds of ideas and advice can resonate so deeply others are inspired to actually spend money on it or take any kind of action, join a community, refer a friend, even just use what they've learned? What kind of ideas and advice inspires that level of action in others? John wants to know. Don't you? I think John is at a crossroads, and he's in danger of becoming the very thing he says he dislikes. He's in danger of sharing rehashed, commonplace advice with his audience. And I think that's for two reasons. Number one, he's running out of ideas to pull from his own experience firsthand. And two, his early mover advantage can go away the moment someone else says they do what John does too. Yes, right now, he's the lone game in town, a community group solely for marketers, solely about creating good content. What happens if others did that too? What if I started a group like that today? Now we're competing together on price, or John has to market louder or hype harder than me. Either way, he becomes the thing that he fears, a commodity. So how do we avoid being commodities? How do we create work that resonates deeper than the rest and do so in the noisiest era in history? To understand more about this idea and to help John and us keep evolving, I talked to Andrew Davis. I'm Andrew Davis, and I am an author and keynote speaker. What we're about to discuss and what you're about to hear from this moment onward only applies to the types of people who, perhaps like you, are here to make things that make a difference, to make what matters most to your career, to your company, and to your audience. If you're just trying to arbitrage an opportunity, generate a quick result, or make a quick buck, turn back now. Because not only is the rest of this episode not for you, the rest of this show is not for you. Still with me? Okay. Let's keep going. So you have said that the world doesn't need another expert. What do you actually mean by that? When I say the world doesn't need another expert, uh, I mean that expertise is commoditized like it's everywhere every question simple question that you want answered uh can be typed into google and and there are a ton of experts who have answered the question in exactly or very similar ways so if you want to charge a premium for your service or your insight you can't sell a commodity product you meaning you can't just share expert ideas when you're a commodity you blend in instead of stand out you don't really create passionate fans, you know, people who pick you and stick with you no matter what. Instead, your audience understands, I can get this commodity from any number of sources, and you, the source that I happen to find today, don't particularly interest me and don't particularly matter. And so if you're the person offering a commodity or the organization offering a commodity, you better be damn sure that you shout louder, market broader and harder, 
price cheaper or else reach your audience before anyone else does. Because what you offer is unoriginal, undifferentiated, and not that high impact. People don't have a reason to stick and stay with you when you're yet another instead of the only. You know, we've been taught that the goal is to get people to click, then consume, share, like, and comment on your content, and that the volume matters, not the quality of the output of the reader. <laughs> and so, you know, that's the difference between a visionary and an expert. A visionary is is more concerned about the legacy they're leaving with the lives they've touched than they are about how many people viewed the post today. The tipping point that you propose is to ask a question that Google can't answer. In other words, you launch a quest. Can't Google answer every type of question? <laughs> like what? Give me some examples. <laughs> what do you What do you mean? You know, when the pandemic started, everybody felt like they were stuck to their desks and stuck in their homes. And I started to wonder: Is anything productive coming out of the pandemic? And you can type that into Google and, you know, you might find five things, productive things that you can do with your time now that you're locked at home. You'll find those kinds of answers. But that isn't the question I'm asking. I'm asking, what lessons can we learn from the pandemic that we could pull forward and become better people and businesses because of? And so I started wondering things like, everybody's been talking about getting back to business as usual, right? And I kept wondering, is business as usual before the pandemic what we really want to get back to? I went on a quest to find out things like, uh, where did the phrase business as usual come from? So I spent a whole half a day reading about Winston Churchill and World War I and World War II and found myself fascinated with the way business as usual was used as a rally cry to help get people excited uh, and and defend their their way of life in the middle of a world war. Now, this isn't stuff that necessarily I think the audience needs to know, but it's stuff I want to share with the audience because I'm on this journey to uncover this simple question, like is business as usual and the new normal what we actually want or do we want to build something better? When you start talking like that, I'm so inspired, I'm so excited, and I'm so convinced that if you're not a speaker and author, you're not a full-time creator, I got a job, I got numbers to hit, whatever. I got like, I can't spend half a day reading about the history of a, of a common phrase, right? So I'm, I'm sold. I'm also doing work that is more similar to your work than it is mm. the director of marketing at a business uh, or the solo creator running a community group who's like, look, I, I just got to get a post up today. If you're running a business or a community uh, and you feel like you need to get that post out because you've got to get that post out, I think the best place to find inspiration for a visionary quest is in the advice from other experts that bothers you and could affect your business. What are the traits of how an expert acts compared to how a visionary would act? There's probably three simple traits that experts demonstrate that visionaries don't necessarily. Number one, and the easiest one to spot, is they call themselves an expert. They <laughs> claim to have the answers, and they can deliver success constantly, and they're very proud of that. Right, um, like, I can teach you to X. I can teach you. Yeah, if you go on LinkedIn and you just search expert, those are the people we're talking about, <laughs> because it'll say expert in their LinkedIn profile. The, the difference is when you look at a visionary, they're humble enough to know that they don't have the answer 
um, they have an answer, they're working on an answer, they might be even getting close to what they believe is the answer, but they're, they're humble enough to know it can't be the answer for everybody. Um, and they very rarely call themselves an expert. I think number two, experts are keen on quick fixes, hacks and tips and tricks. And you know, you wrote a whole book about best practices. Experts are great at teaching, preaching, presenting and regurgitating best practices that they've collected around the web. They've curated the stuff that they believe works the best and presented it in a way that's compelling, interesting and exciting. And in my opinion, it overpromises. You know, it's the top 10 ways to set goals and achieve your business success. Uh, you know, it's 800 words and you should feel like you can walk away and now build the billion dollar business of your dreams. That's kind of the, the premise. Um, and the third thing I think experts do that kind of are, are a key marker for me is there isn't a lot of original thought. Um, and even when there is, it's a derivative of somebody else's original thought. So it, it's essentially the same of advice in a new shiny package. I think it's worth mentioning all three of those traits again, the traits that experts exhibit that makes them a commodity today. And two quick disclaimers before we do that. Number one, I'm talking about our world of knowledge work, creative work, of building businesses and careers. I'm not talking about health or medicine or things like that. Number two, I'm also not declaring experts in any niche unworthy or unwise. But instead, I am saying, and Drew is saying the same thing, they are commodities. Expertise has been commodified, as impossible as that might sound. It's everywhere, it's easy to access for free, and it's largely undifferentiated if you exhibit these three traits. These are the commonplace traits of experts who have become commodified. Number one, they're quick to declare themselves as experts. They want you to know they have the answer. Second, experts are great at teaching and preaching best practices, the tips and tricks, the cheats and hacks, the stuff they believe works best in general. The problem with all this stuff is it often overpromises and under-delivers. And finally, experts who have become commodified just regurgitate things you've heard before. They repackage old thinking or conventional wisdom in a shiny new package. And if you think you have the answer, and if you teach things that sound overpromised, overhyped, that ultimately underdeliver, and if you are just repackaging conventional wisdom and not challenging it at all, you have become commodified. Expert advice is redundant and repetitive, and it, it doesn't last forever. Like there's a there's a well that you will get to the bottom of at some point. And if you don't get to the bottom of it, your audience will. When they're like, I've heard this before, I get it. I've heard it before. This is just a derivative of somebody else's idea that you had on the podcast or the on the blog or that you interviewed on your YouTube channel last week. You know, if you want to engage at a deeper level with an audience, we have to ask the questions that they didn't know they needed to ask. Did you catch that? I'll repeat it. To start becoming a visionary for your audience, ask the questions that they didn't know they need to ask. Many of us who are experts are trying really hard to help people, and maybe we don't know what else to do. I think John is in that camp, perhaps. So what do others want? What are they asking for? Those are the wrong questions for us to ask to inform our work. What do we need as a community? What would make things better, even if the people we serve don't yet know to ask that question or seek that result just yet? Forget what people say they want. What do we as a community need?
That's the territory of a visionary. For example, if I was creating content because I love marketing and I do a lot of marketing and I think a lot about marketing, what bothers me right now is everybody everywhere telling me I need to repurpose my content. In fact, I was on a webinar the other day where somebody says we need to treat, uh, we need to use the whole content buffalo, which by the way is a great analogy, right? Like <laughs> use every part of the buffalo. So if you create a blog post, you got to repurpose that as an infographic. You need to repurpose it as a YouTube video. You need to repurpose the blog post as a podcast. And my question is, why? Why? Now, I don't know the answer, but a good, a good visionary would immediately dive in to try to answer that question. And the first thing you've got to do is investigate. I like to say investigate because I feel like I'm an investigative reporter or I'm on a murder mystery. You know, I've just, I've just entered my version of CSI where I've got to find all the clues. Like, where did this repurpose advice come from? Who started it? Because maybe it was a brand who could benefit from repurposing. <laughs> and then if that's the case, we should question that advice. Now, I don't know the answer to that, but I would immediately start to go on that journey. And even if I have a blog post due on Monday and this idea came to me on Friday, I would do as much as I could in the time allowed to research this question. And I might not find much. I might find that there are 5 billion articles about repurposing your content, but I would still write a blog post about repurposing your content and how much it bothers me. And I'd ask the audience, does it bother you? Andrew Davis is two things at the very same time. First, he is a visionary himself. I think he is. He asks big questions that Google can't answer, and then he goes on quests to investigate. He asks those questions about marketing, about the pandemic's effect on business, and more. But he's also an arms dealer for visionaries. Drew wants more people like John, like me, like you, to stop acting like experts and to launch our very own quests. And to help us, he's created a visual tool to chart the journey. It's called the Quest Matrix. Picture a two-by-two two matrix. I'm sure you know the type. A horizontal line runs left to right. And through the middle of it, a vertical line running up and down. So now you have a kind of cross or T. And these two intersecting lines, these axes, create four quadrants. Bottom left, top left, top right, and bottom right. Our goal is to move from the bottom left, which is where we usually work, to the top right. But before we take that journey together in this episode, let's first break down the matrix so we understand this visual tool. And by the way, if you're looking for the actual visual, I've added a link in your show notes so you can see it. You could pull it up and walk through it with me, or you can take a look at it on your own time. Either way, it's available for you to see. Okay, ready? Let's build the Quest Matrix. Let's start with the horizontal axis running left to right. This axis charts your insights, what you're saying, teaching, or exploring. Yeah, so imagine the horizontal axis. On one side, you have insight that's generally accepted and acknowledged insight, okay? And on the other end of the horizontal axis, you have insight that's challenging the conventional wisdom. Got it? Can you picture it? It's a horizontal line plotting the type of insight you have. All the way to the left, accepted. Everybody accepts, or very quickly will, whatever the insight is as truth. It's part of the conventional wisdom. It's accepted. Then on the opposite end, all the way to the right, is challenge. 
the insight challenges conventional wisdom. So for example, if we're talking content marketing on the accepted side would be this idea that you just need to create content constantly. You need to regularly deliver it and it needs to be valuable for your audience. Those are generally accepted ideas that almost anyone can deliver. Now on the other side, if you were going to challenge the conventional wisdom, that's where questions like, Hey, why do we repurpose our content? on every channel, even though it's the same content we originally wrote in a blog post. We want to challenge that wisdom. Why is everybody told to repurpose their content? Now let's go vertically. What's the vertical okay. access? On the vertical axis, we have your objective for the piece of content you're creating or the audience that's listening. On, on the very top of the, video, the vertical axis, we have how to think content. That is content that is not going to teach you the steps to do something. It's just going to help change your frame of mind and help you think about the problem or the solution or the hypothesis in a totally different way. And on the bottom of that vertical axis, we have the how-to content. We have the stuff that's the 10 top 10 list and the tips and tricks and the best practices and the four case studies and the six things you can learn and every how-to article you've ever read. So whereas the horizontal line was about the type of insight you're sharing, the vertical line is all about what those insights do for your audience, what they're for. So now we have our quest matrix. The horizontal axis charts the type of insight you have. From left to right, it can be accepted or it can challenge the status quo, the conventional wisdom. And the vertical axis charts the use of that insight to your audience. Is it at the bottom, the how-to, or the top, how to think? Now, for our purposes, we only need to know about the bottom left and the top right quadrants. The bottom left is where we tend to start our work. The insight all the way to the left is accepted among the people we're trying to serve. And then we share how-to advice. Simple ideas that are or soon will be part of the conventional thinking and prescriptions or instructions for how to execute based on those ideas. Accepted ideas shared through how-to advice. That is the noisiest most common place for us to be. I call that expertville. That is the commodity content. That is the, imagine a town where it's just overcrowded. It's like Manhattan and you're trying to walk down the street and there's an expert everywhere and they, they're in coffee shops, but they've all got six tips and somebody's trying to write the seventh tip so that they can outdo the six tippers. It's just, it's commodity stuff. That's the bottom left of the quadrant. Accepted insights shared as how-to content. Conventional wisdom prescriptive advice. The bottom left. The top right is where we want to be. It's where John wants to go, and it's where I'm trying to get this show and all of my work to go too. If you're all the way to the top right, you're sharing insights along the horizontal axis that challenge the conventional wisdom, and you're all the way to the top on the vertical axis to change how people think. It's how to think content. You've left Expertville. Next stop, Visionary Town. That is where the, the thought leaders live. That is the people who are really changing the way businesses operate. They are changing the way people live their lives. These are the people that are leaving a legacy because they've actually are helping you make a shift in your mindset to re-understand the problem and maybe the solution. And they're inviting you to go on this journey with them to solve the problem. That's visionary town. And how do I move between the two? There's something in the middle, this bullseye that you talk yeah. to often. <laughs> What's in the middle? So 
At the middle is what I call the crossroads. And the crossroads is really easy to make a leap to. You know, if you're at the very bottom and left of that quadrant where you're just delivering great content about how to generally accepted advice and insight and wisdom, you can make a leap right to the crossroads immediately if you just find some advice from other experts that's always bothered you and, and commit to going on a journey to find out where it came from and why it works, to ask that question that Google can't answer. Drew says that the next step is to aerate our thinking, to get out into the world and actually pressure test what we're saying, sometimes privately, one-to-one, sometimes publicly. We're investigating the truth on this quest, moving from Expertville to Visionary Town. And a key difference is that we have more questions than answers. So we're investigating, we're aerating, we're sharing, gathering new evidence, and updating our thinking. The first check I have is calling a friend and asking questions. I've done that with you before, I know. Yeah, where I've called up and I said, like, I found something interesting. I want to run it by you. Tell me what you think. And, you know, I, you need honest people who are going to give you interesting feedback. Yes, that's a form of aeration. Sometimes when I'm, I'm not even sure if it's a question that I want to ask and then go follow up on the answer, I just aerate it on Twitter and see if anybody responds or likes it or as says, like, that's a worthy quest, essentially. Social media has given you this ability to take a fleeting idea share it with the world, aerate it in a sense, and get instant feedback. And you're not looking for millions of likes and tweets to tell you you're going in the right direction. Like you say all the time, you're looking for resonance. You're looking for just, does this resonate with anyone? And does that help me, encourage me to take the next step on this journey? And my belief is that the longer form your final product or your output is, the easier it is to build to something. So for example, if I was going to go down this repurposing quest and and try to find out, you know, why do we repurpose our content and what does that advice really mean and does it actually work? I would commit to my audience of, of newsletter subscribers and YouTube subscribers that I was going to spend the more, next four to six weeks trying to answer this question. And maybe I answer it in two and I don't need the other four weeks, but I'm going to share that with them. And maybe it turns out I need eight weeks or 10 weeks and they're loving it. And we've uncovered all this crazy stuff that no one ever talks about. And they trust me more and believe me more. And that I think is the value of sharing the journey with your audience. Where did you first learn to think this way, to stop trying to put yourself as an executive, as a marketer, as a, as a thinker and a business leader and practitioner, not in the camp of the expert, but to push towards being a visionary? Where did you learn that? I learned it running a business. So, you know, I, I ran a marketing agency for 12 years and early on I was invited to speak at some conferences and I thought the best way to convince this audience that our agency knows what we're doing is show them how expert we are. <laughs> so I would put together a bunch of tips and tricks and some case studies that were obviously ours. And I would deliver my tips and tricks presentation with some amazing case studies, uh, you know, including numbers and everything to make people real excited. Uh, And then I'd wait for the leads to roll in and the leads never came. And finally, I started watching 
speakers who were considered visionaries. I wouldn't have termed them that at the time. I didn't know what they were, but they were the people that were had a line of people that wanted to talk to them afterwards. And a lot of them ran agencies just like mine. And I'm thinking, these people are getting tons of leads. What am I doing wrong? I started to dissect. I, I, I went on a quest. I didn't know it was one at the time, but I started to you know outline their presentations. I started to watch the videos of them speaking. And I realized that they were humble on stage. A lot of times they never mentioned that it was a client of theirs. I didn't even know if it was, and it didn't seem to matter. Their expertise wasn't tips and tricks. It was big thinking ideas and new frameworks that were changing the way the executives in the room thought and acted uh, and helped them you know, question the conventional thinking. Like you would say, you know, their best practices were kind of thrown out the window. And I started to emulate that at first. And then I found myself on my own quest pretty quickly to answer questions that I needed answered but couldn't find an answer for. And it's only been in the last few years that I've tried to document the process to help other people understand that there's value here. And if you want to leave a legacy, I think this is the best way to do it. It sounds like everything we've talked about so far points back to one spark. Uh, and I, act, I use this analogy quite often. I think about the process of investigation or creating as like three different phases that are all related to one metaphor, which is fire. So picture a match, right? That's, that's frustration. You can strike the match over and over again. It's this awesome spark. It's like, I'm frustrated. I pissed off. I can't stand it. It's why is this way? Ah, come on. Like, and the problem is a lot of people seem to stop there. They sit there holding their frustrations. They sit there holding the match. And what happens if you hold a match too long is you get burned. So effectively, what I just described is most of Twitter. Mm. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's kind of it. Right. Yes. Some people turn frustration into curiosity. And so the curiosity is the kindling, right? So I'm going to take the match, strike it, I'm frustrated. Why? Questions. Now it's curiosity, right? It's like I, I'm sensing something through emotion, but now I'm turning it into language. I'm asking questions. That's the kindling. And the roaring fire that emerges that you want to stoke is your creativity, is your investigation. And it needs, in your words, that aeration. It needs oxygen, quite literally, to yeah. continue to flame up. Talk to me about the tipping point. We're not really talking about the crossroads necessarily. We're almost talking about the bottom left quadrant. And I do feel frustrated. I've struck my match. What's the difference in your mind between somebody who just sits there holding it and somebody who is able to light the kindling to turn frustration into curiosity? Because I think that tiny hidden moment doesn't happen often enough. I can think of two things right off the bat that stop people from going on this quest to making the leap to the crossroads and even attempting to, to light that fire uh, and throw the match into the kindling. And the first thing is imposter syndrome. They think, well, I can't be the only one that's frustrated with this. Somebody must have tried to solve this problem already. And maybe they didn't solve it because I've never heard of the solution, but I don't think I'm worthy of solving this problem. So I'm going to move on. And they let the match burn out or they even blow it out and move on to the next thing. So, so that's the, the first thing I see. They feel like uh, th they aren't worthy to solve the problem uh, or somebody must have already solved it. And, you know, I just haven't heard the answer. The second thing that I think stops people is a fear of looking or sounding dumb. <laughs> so, for example, it does sound silly for me to write a blog post that, that's, that's titled, What is Business as Usual? 
I'm sure I can find out the definition. I'm sure Oxford Dictionary has done a really good job of defining what it was. I don't, it's not a question that looks like some genius blog post. And so I think people get nervous that they're going to look dumb by investigating things that they don't know anything about. But chances are your audience has never even asked this question and they don't know the answer or the history. And maybe it will spark something in their minds as well. And I think you have to be willing to share the stuff that you know you don't know. And that's one sign that you're no longer an expertville. You know, experts are always scared of not having the answer. Visionaries are always willing to ask a question that sounds dumb <laughs> in the hopes of learning something new that will further their quest. For, for me, I never imagined one of these quests is, uh, is gonna take nine months I always think I'm going to uncover the answer pretty quickly and get the bottom of this. But what happens is I end up with a new question. <laughs> and even though I got the answer to where did the term business as usual come from and why do people use it? And should we be asking, you know, do we want to go back to business as usual? The, the next question I, I need to ask myself out of that research is like, what does it mean to us today? And I need to then try to answer that for my audience. Does that mean just an investigation into my brain? Or does it mean looking at some other companies and asking some other executives, hey, you know, what does business as usual mean to you? And is that what you want to go back to after this, this last 18 months? Like from a business context, if you think of everything as an investigation that's going to help your clients and your customers and possibly your prospects build a better business for themselves or have a better life, you're going on a quest that is worthy of their time and attention. And whatever you find is going to be helpful and valid and, and interesting to them. But you've got to investigate. Then you've got to aerate the ideas. You can't just squirrel away the, the thinking and say, well, I, I found the answer to that question. I've got a good answer. Next time Trivial Pursuit says, where did business as usual come from? And who's credited with the quote? I'm going to say Winston Churchill because I know that. I've got to share what I've learned. And then you've got to really hear what the audience says and amplify what you hear them repeating or questioning. When we last left our friend John Benini, he was at this crossroads. What he didn't realize was that this crossroads was right in the middle of the quest matrix. It's the tipping point between being an expert and being a visionary, between someone who has the answers and someone who asks great questions. I think John feels a tension or a frustration most acutely when he feels dragged back into Expertville. He wants to remain in the cozy, if crowded, confines of sharing best practices, tips and tricks, how-tos, that kind of stuff. But as he tells us, he was running out of those ideas from his own career. You do feel like you circled the block and like, how do you continue to post original insights? And so naturally, John turned to other experts. Well, if he exhausted the approaches from his career, what about others' careers? And that is a truly wonderful way to learn at first. So John launched a podcast for group members to hear expert interviews. And this, this is where you might disagree with me the most. I think all John is doing is prolonging the problem. Expert advice from others is just as commodified as expert advice from me 
or you, or John. We can find it everywhere, whether from that exact person that John interviews or someone similar. You feel like when people sign up for a group or community, they want to learn from you. And you feel like you need to have these endless snackable, tweetable insights. And there could be pressure there that you continually have to produce yourself. You could also be more of an explorer, a curator, and somebody who finds these other bits of wisdom and places it within the lens of your own point of view. And that has impacted how I go about the future of this group. I just don't know that I'm there yet. I don't know that I've been able to fully unlock that approach, if that makes sense. I'm not saying this stuff isn't useful. I'm not saying expertise isn't useful or learning from other experts isn't useful. I'm saying it's not worth paying for. The creator or curator has no leverage because they're easily copied. They're a commodity, just like the expertise they create or curate. And you can only charge so much or resonate so deeply by being a curator without a vision. You're doing a service, absolutely, but you don't have much leverage at all. If John became a visionary, he'd never need to worry about being a commodity. Instead, he'd resonate deeper and could more confidently charge a premium for what he's building. He would have leverage, the ability to price more, to try more interesting or risky things, to buck the trend. Why would he have to publish five times a week? Because there's five days and everyone says you have to? He could probably publish once a month if he had that kind of leverage. And it's all because he resonates so deeply. And he doesn't just help people, he transforms them. He inspires action in a way that they haven't experienced before because he asks questions that they didn't know they needed to ask. And then he brings them with him on his journey to understand what the answers might be. Visionaries have leverage. So he should be asking the same question that he started to ask, but then retreated back into expertville. What does it take to create some good content? Really? Not the tips and tricks. Not yet. Why aren't we doing this? How might we do this? How might I think better or in a way that's more elevated to then do it myself? What might be better than the status quo? What do you think is holding you back? I would say time at this point. There's dependencies there, right? When you're, whether you're curating insights or whether you're uh, interviewing others and trying to get insights and others to place within your point of view, there's dependencies there. You have to talk to other people, right? And I think for me, the biggest hurdle there has just been time right? With a full-time job, with kids, it's been tough to map that out. Who do I talk to? How often do I talk to them? When do I talk to them? You know, is it a survey that I could create that can sort of gather more information from people that would help save time, things like that? Do you still feel like there's stuff that deserves to be explored, whether that's from a place of frustration or curiosity? Oh yeah, absolutely. What is it that these people are doing that makes sense? Or what are the common threads that I'm seeing across several companies or dozens of companies? And I think that part is is the the fun but challenging part, which is like taking the time to do that exploration and to do that investigation really into why are these things working? It's not right. just about like what's working, but like why is that working? And like that is the part that's more interesting to me. And it's harder, right? Uh, involves more investigative exploration and uh, which requires time. So I think that if anything, now there's more to explore, uh, but to investigate those things takes takes more time.
What makes some people remain in Expertville while others ascend to Visionary Town? Is it time? Is it fear? What might cause two similar people to arrive at the crossroads and one turns back while the other pushes forward? Being a visionary isn't about hype or the muse. It's not about a giant audience or saying tweetable things from a stage. It's about leadership. It's about the clarity of vision that you have. That makes you a visionary. You raise your hand and say, where we stand right now, it just won't do. This is broken. I'm frustrated, aren't you? Away in the distance, I see a mountain peak and I have no idea how to reach it, but I'm holding my machete in my hand. It's my craft, it's my creativity, it's my curiosity. And with this machete in hand, I'm hacking away at the jungle between where we all are and where I think we need to be. And if you're also frustrated or you have questions, or if you also believe that that would be a better place to get to than here, join me, join us, join the quest. From the status quo to something better, from accepted wisdom to something challenging the conventional approach, from commodity how-to instruction towards how to think ideas that elevate how we see this work. What does it take to create some good content? What does business as usual even mean? How might we all create more resonant work? John's quest, Drew's quest, and mine. We have more questions than answers, and we're on a journey to figure it out. We have too many questions to sit back, feel smug, and declare, I made it. I'm an expert. Let the quest continue. Ask that question that Google can't answer. Thanks for listening. This episode was written and edited by me and produced by Alana Nevins. If you had any thoughts or questions on the episode, the ideas in it, the story, anything at all, email me, j at unthinkablemedia.com. I'm also at jayacunzo on Twitter. To continue the quest that I'm on, you know, the question I'm exploring, what does it take to create work that resonates? Consider subscribing to my free newsletter. I send it every Friday with a story and insight that you won't find anywhere else. You can join thousands of creative individuals from executives and marketers at brands like Adobe, Shopify, the BBC, and Salesforce to tons of entrepreneurs, freelancers, and independent creators. Subscribe at jayaconzo.com. If you like this show, please support it by buying a book or sharing it with a friend or leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. This is an independent program, so every little bit of support we get Yet, actually helps us continue making the show. It helps us book better guests, grow the audience, attract sponsors, generate revenue, keep the show going for you. So thank you so much for taking an active role in supporting Unthinkable. We're back soon with another story as we continue our quest to understand what it takes to create work that resonates. Until then, keep making what matters. See ya.